Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to Tennis Unfiltered with me, James Gray of inews.co.uk and the iNewspaper. It's day two of the Australian Open and we're looking back at everything that happened here on the uh, the first Monday, which ordinarily would be the first day, but of course with a Sunday start, uh, things are a little bit different here in Melbourne this year. But some things stay the same. It's still hot, it's still humid and the tennis is still pretty thrilling, I think people will agree. Um, we're going to talk most of all today about Andy Murray because yesterday day two I should say might well have been his last day playing tennis in Melbourne in a competitive uh, function he was beaten in three sets by Thomas Martin Echeverri the Argentinian who he played twice last year and split the matches he lost 6-4, 6-2, 6-2 in what was one of the more one-sided Murray matches Um, although you have to say that when you think about this final stage of his career they are becoming more and more uh, common, you should say. I was looking up when his last worst defeat was at a Grand Slam. Well, this was the worst defeat since the last one uh, because he lost the same number of games to Grigor Dimitrov at the US Open, which, of course, was his last Grand Slam match. Uh, It's a pattern of play that I don't think anyone wants to see, and particularly not Andy Murray, um, given what he's trying to achieve. I mean... I think the question now is what he is trying to achieve. Uh, and he kind of said that afterwards. He said he, he was kind of trying to to make sure he didn't do Thomas Martinez very down. And he said that, you know, he could have played well and, and lost that match. It's very possible. But the nature of the defeat got him asking questions. And I think that's that's where we all are with Murray now. I mean, he's on the worst run of defeats in his career he's lost seven of his last eight matches Yannick Hampfman is the only person he's beaten uh, he beat him in Basel last year he's lost to uh, Echeverry Dimitrov Dumanur of course with match points Echeverry again Safiulin Dumanur again and again with match points and Aslan Karatsev they are his last seven defeats um, and that stretches back to Zuhai in September last year I think also it should be noted that it's not as though last year was, you know, wildly successful for him. He wants to be getting to the quarterfinals of Grand Slams. That's kind of, I think if he made a quarterfinal, he'd go, well, you know, I tried and I got there and then, and then I went. But, you know, outside of the challenges, of which, of course, he won three last year uh, in Nottingham, Surbiton and Aix-en-Provence, there weren't very many match wins at the top level. The run to the Doha final, I suppose, you would point to. But other than that, it's difficult to remember 
in recent memory a time when Andy Murray was in good form, playing well, and, and you weren't just saying, well, we just want to know when he's retiring. But unfortunately, after a match like that, they're the questions that get asked. He said it was a poor performance. It was very, very flat. It was an amazing crowd out there. I felt like they were trying to pick me up, support and get behind me. Usually I would always engage the crowd and get them going and bring them in some energy into the match. I think that was notable actually because where we were sat in the media seats, it was sort of just behind one of his towel boxes. So he was often walking over and looking up at the big screen above us or into the crowd. And, you know, I remember that Oscar Otto match at Wimbledon where he picked out a couple of people in the crowd, as he often does, and just celebrated with them when he got big points and really engaged with them and drew on their energy, as he says there. And there was none of that on Monday. He just, he didn't look uninterested, but he looked a bit resigned and a bit beaten. And he said, oh, I need, to, I need to work out why I was so flat. Well, I think there's a reality starting to arrive for Andy Murray here. Um, he said, it's a definite possibility this will be my last time I play here. In comparison to the matches I played here last year, it's complete opposite feeling walking off the court. Yeah, I wish I involved the crowd more. Just disappointed with the way I played. A tough, tough way to finish. That's more final than Murray, I think, has really ever been. Uh, apart from, of course, that famous press conference in 2019, which I think he thought was him retiring and, and most other people did. And then, of course, we all know what happened after that. But it, it was different today. I've been in a lot of Murray's recent press conferences after defeats at Grand Slams. And that just felt, it just felt different. It felt more resigned, more final. There wasn't talk about how he was going to fix it or what he had to do to get better. It was just like, it felt as though he finally had walked off a court and gone, yeah, I can't do this anymore. Which is, you know, tremendously sad, but it, you know, it's also time for someone to save Andy Murray from himself. The, the analysis that I wrote for um, the I newspaper, I, I said, you know, the things that have always made Andy Murray great through his career, his tenacity, his bloody-mindedness, his refusal to give up, that's actually what's now holding him back from moving on to another career, whatever that might look like. Whatever, you know, I don't think he's going to walk away from tennis. I'm, I'm convinced that he'll still be involved in tennis, but whatever it is, I don't know that playing is, is what he can still be doing. And, you know, similarly, I think those characteristics that made him a great player on the court are also what's holding him back on the court. He still just refuses to unleash. You know, the forehand is so toothless now because it, it is hit with a lot of cover and it, it's still that Andy Murray, go on, make one more ball, make two more balls, make another ball so that you can beat me. Because that's the game style that he always built and much as he says he's more aggressive, I don't think that he is on the court. I still think when when he gets tight and when, you know, the blood's up, he just reverts to type and you know, there's very little I he just doesn't have the mobility to do it now. You know, Marin Cilic said it last week in Kuyong, he said he's got limitations. And and Murray's kind of always shied away a little bit from saying that he doesn't move as well or isn't as fit now as he was before. But even yes, even then again in his press conference, he, he sort of said, oh, you know, when I get in certain deep positions, it, you know, I'm not as flexible as I used to be. And again, like, that's so un-Andy Murray. He's always, to a fault, and often he's wrong, 
said, you know, I'm better than I've ever been. I'm fitter than I've ever been. I'm just, I'm always moving forwards. And there, there is a, a kind of acceptance now that he has moved backwards and is continuing to do so. I guess the question now is when. Um, he said, and he's always said, I've got an idea of when I would like to stop. Um, I know I've spoken to a couple of people who said he wants to play Wimbledon, he wants to play the Olympics. I know that'll be a surprise because the Olympics are on clay this year in Paris, but you know he's always, you know, the Olympics is such a big part of his legacy. He's won two Olympic gold medals, and, and I think certainly the one in Rio was, well, the one in London was a huge achievement because it led to everything else, I think. It was a big moment mentally for him to get over that hump and to beat Federer at Wimbledon and the rest of it. And the one in Rio was just an incredible physical effort, given the length of those matches. You know, the one against Del Potro is, is the one everyone really remembers. And um, so the Olympics are a really big part of that. And I think he would really relish the opportunity in singles or doubles, frankly. I don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility that he doesn't play singles and that, you know, Neil Skupski picks him as his partner and they go and play doubles together. Um, I, it wouldn't be what he would want to do but it might just be a reality that that's what he has to do so I, I, I'm I'm kind of looking forward to that all being mapped out and, and you know he can start to enjoy saying goodbye like he slipped off court very quickly and, and I, it's kind of because of who he is it, you know he he is understated and he wouldn't want to milk it and you know he was so embarrassed in 2019 when they did that big montage um and I think he would like to do it in an understated way, but that won't be allowed to happen. You know, Wimbledon will want to have a big goodbye. And, you know, if he ends up retiring at the US Open, which I think is not impossible, and, you know, would have some kind of um, circular composition to it. It's, of course, where he won his first Grand Slam uh, and has played so many great matches over the years and is an amazing venue, of course. But if he does go there, then, you know, we saw with Serena, they... They will put on a show, and it won't be the same as Serena. It won't be the same as Federer's retirement party at the Labour Cup. I, I can't exactly imagine Ellie Golding rocking up for Andy Murray's retirement party. Maybe the Proclaimers or Charlene Spiteri or someone like that. But uh, yeah, it will be something different. It's possible that he clings on and goes. You know, if he wants to end at Wimbledon, if he wants to play Wimbledon and the Olympics and end at Wimbledon, then he has to play Wimbledon 2025. I don't think that's hugely likely. Um, especially in the aftermath of what's just happened, but it, but it's possible. So um, we await with interest to see exactly exactly what happens. Uh, let us know what you think at Unfiltered Tennis. Um, let us know what you think about Andy Murray's career or tennisunfiltered at gmail.com. Send us an email. We'll read it out as always um, and try and get George and Calvin's thoughts on it as well. Um, I've been trying to track down Calvin this morning, but he is. Uh, indisposed but he's got the first round of the Australian Open tomorrow so I think I'll I think I'll forgive him on this occasion what else happened yesterday um, I spoke to a couple of players uh, which does happen uh, when I occasionally do some work uh, on this occasion Adrian Manorino and Roberto Bautista Agut who are not names you would think oh James that's an obvious reason why you go and talk to them um, you may know that they were both involved in an exhibition event at uh, in St Petersburg in December which was sponsored by Gazprom who, for people who don't know, are a Russian government-majority-owned oil company. They're the biggest oil company in Russia. They are the biggest taxpayers in Russia. Uh, the board of, I think, actually offered to pay more tax in order to support uh, Vladimir Putin's war effort in Ukraine. 
Uh, they are sanctioned by the US Treasury. Uh, there are some sanctions against them in other countries as well. Uh, they are, for all intents and purposes, part of Vladimir Putin's war machine. They are structurally, politically and economically integral to Vladimir Putin's Russia, as um, the iColumnist Ian Dunk put it. Not to mention the fact that, you know, Senator ATP and WTA uh, events are banned in Russia. Now, this was not an ATP or WTA sanctioned event. Uh, the ATP and WTA do not put restrictions on what players can or cannot do during the off-season. But Lesya Serenko, the Ukrainian player, says she tried to reach out to all the non-Russian players who were going to go and play in this exhibition and explain why it was a problem and the propaganda involved. And um, Both Manorino and Batista Agut said to me that they didn't hear from her. Now, I don't know whether that means she doesn't have their number or they didn't see the messages or whatever, but that's what they said. Um, and I asked them directly, like, talk me through your decision about to go there. Um, Manorino said, I'm a professional tennis player. I'm not into politics or anything. I just went there. I did my job. That's what I did. I'm not supporting anything. That was a private event. This was not about anything, any about political support. There's nothing to talk about. Um, Batista Agut said... I just want to keep playing as many matches as possible. That's why I went there to play. Um, citing the fact that he'd been out injured for four months last year and was trying to build some momentum. Um, it's kind of predictable. We, we knew that that's what they'd say, I suppose. But it's pretty mealy-mouthed. And, you know, I don't think either of them need the money. I, I'm sure they will have been handsomely paid for going and playing in that event. Um, uh, you know, much as... I'm sure he could have found good hitting or an exhibition event somewhere else. He could have gone and played UTS, for example, which I think was the same weekend, I'm sure. Um, but, you know, Adrian Manorino's made $11 million in his career. Batista Agut's made $17 million and, and actually came from a fairly wealthy background. These are not guys, like, living on the breadline who, when offered $100,000 to go and play an exhibition, or, or you know, or less or more, these are not life-changing sums of money either. It's not, it's not as though this is the Saudi Arabian Live Golf Tour and they're being offered $100 million and they say, well, look, I, that, that's it for me. That, I, I could retire tomorrow and, and be happy and my whole family could be. And I, I kind of empathise with players who do find themselves in that position. But to go and play a pissy exhibition, it's Petersburg, lovely, they tell me, but that's, that's the only saving grace. But to go and play this exhibition event, you know, it, it smacks of having no morals whatsoever. Uh, and it brings me back to, people may remember the famous question asked of Ian Poulter by Neil McClemon of The Mirror, who also covers tennis and is here in Australia. And he said, is there anyone you wouldn't play for? And it, it kind of smacks are the same thing for Manorino and Batista Agu. I don't think there is anyone. You know, would they go and play an exhibition in North Korea if the price was right? Or I don't know. It's quite hard to think of many worse places. I mean, there are worse dictators. Eritrea, I suppose, maybe. But I don't know if they're holding any tennis exhibitions anytime soon. But, I mean, neither in North Korea, quite frankly. But anyway, you, you see my point, I, I hope. Um, so pretty disappointing to see. You know, I almost would have respected it if they'd said... I went for the money and it was a lot but I actually think it would need to be an awful lot of money for it to be a justifiable action 
Um, yeah, well, well, we wait with interest. Um, I'm going to speak to Marta Kostryk later in the week, who's obviously Ukrainian and has been very outspoken on this kind of thing. Um, and we'll see what she has to say. I, I can only imagine she'll be pretty angry about it. Um, she's obviously <laughs> concentrating on the tournaments at the moment because she's still in singles and doubles. But um, yeah, we'll, we'll see what she says. Um, on a similar note, you may have seen the news uh, from... Well, it was in my email inbox, I suppose. I was going to credit someone with breaking it, but no one did break it. It was in my email inbox. Uh, I can't really say that it was some kind of exclusive. The the press release I got was entitled, Rafa Nadal sets new target to grow tennis and sport in Saudi Arabia. Sigh. I mean, it, you know, I've long said that the the battle over Saudi Arabia has been lost. Um, players are desperate to take the money. I'm just pretty disappointed that Raf Nadal and his more than £100 million prize money uh, is the one who's taken the money. And he is now an a, a ambassador, for, a global tennis icon in a new ambassador role says he's part of a long-term commitment to help and grow the sport and inspire a new generation of athletes in Saudi Arabia. I mean, come on. Like, obviously, that that's always going to be the screen they hide behind. Um, but it's it's just not, it's just it's just nonsense, isn't it? It's sports washing. Call it what it is. Um, I don't think it's worth pretending that it's anything other than that. Um, Nadal's quote is slightly sickening. Everywhere you look in Saudi Arabia, you can see growth and progress. I mean, not everywhere, uh, not in the halls of government or in the prisons or, you know, in the guardianship rules or in the human rights departments. Everywhere you look, if you're not looking properly, you can see growth and progress. But he says, I continue to play tennis as I love the game, but beyond playing, I want to help grow the sport far and wide across the world. And in Saudi, there is real potential. Well, I mean... It seems odd that he's picked, you know, this one Middle Eastern oil-rich state uh, to grow the sport of tennis and not any of the other countries in the world where maybe they wouldn't pay him several million dollars. I mean, goodness knows how much they are going to pay Rafa Nadal to do this as the wind whips up at Melbourne Park. It's very hot, but it's also very windy. Um, so you may get a little bit of wind noise. But fortunately, thanks to our new mics, uh, you might not pick it up too much. Not paid for by Saudi Arabia, I should point out. Um, Rafa embodies all the values we hold dear in a true champion on and off the court, says the Saudi Tennis Federation president, Arij Al-Mutabagani. He's simply the ideal role model for our young boys and girls to look up to. Look, I, obviously young Saudis need role models, and I think it, you know, there are young people in Saudi Arabia who I'm sure are underserved in a sporting way, but... I'm afraid that I, I, I don't want Rafa Nadal... You know, if, he, if he's going to go and run a tennis academy there quietly, you know, and say, you know, I'm just running this grassroots programme for millions of kids, fine. But that's not what he's doing. He's a global ambassador. He's not there to grow the sport of tennis in Saudi Arabia. He's there to furnish the regime. He's there to, to create a smokescreen for Saudi Arabia to pretend that you know, look over here so that you don't look over here. It's just a complete fallacy. Um, 
But you've probably heard me tell you this before, and uh, you know Calvin's opinion on it, and mine, and George's, so that's not new. Uh, let me get back to some tennis. Other good results to look at. Uh, Seb Korda came through a five-set challenge against Vit Kopriva, um, which was a bit worrying for someone who had him in their fantasy team. Korda, that is. Uh, Stefan Sitspas was asleep for a set and lost it to Zizou Bergs, the lucky loser, but then only lost five more games en route to the uh, second round. And Jakob Menschik, another one in my fantasy team, beat Denis Shapovalov in straight sets. He's still struggling to come back from injury quite clearly. Uh, a couple of late-night thrillers, though. Uh, Felix Auger-Aliassime went two sets up, promptly lost the next two, and then won the final set 6-3. They finished well after midnight. Craig Tiley solved the late-night finishes, of course, but uh, well, apparently not. Um, and on over on about 300 yards away, uh, Jan Lennon's Struff went into a final set tiebreak against Rinki Hijikata, the home favourite, and went five love up. Hijikata fought all the way back, but then Struff took it 10-8 in the deciding tiebreaker, heartbreaker for the Australians. Over on the women's side, um, good win for Linda Noskova, beating uh, the number 31 seed, Marie Buzkova. Noskova, obviously a junior French Open champion, and actually only a 16-place gap in rankings between those two, so maybe not the biggest shock in the world. Um, other seeds who lost, Ekaterina Alexandrova lost a deciding tiebreak, 11-9 to Laura Ziegmund, who was jumping around left, right and centre after sealing victory. Um, also a good win for, who am I just looking for? Oh, I've lost, I've lost my seat. Oh, uh, Arantxa Roosh absolutely thrashed Angelina Kalanina, 6-1, 6-love. I think there might be more to that, but... Um, and a good performance by Linda Fervatova, uh, a very highly rated Czech teenager, as you know, a cliche these days. Uh, took Beatrice Hadamire all the way to three sets, uh, which I think is a very tough draw indeed. Um, but the final women's match of the day was Caroline Garcia against Naomi Osaka, making her come back at the Australian Open, of course. Uh, Osaka played reasonably well, but a lot of backhand errors. And Garcia, who is, I think, of quite a similar player to Osaka, like big serve, likes to take it early. Um, and she just played better. She was just more efficient, cleaner. Um, and yeah, 6-4, 7-6, probably a fair reflection. Osaka said afterwards that she, she thinks she's played some good people. And I do kind of empathise. You know, she hasn't been losing to no names. She, but that's what happens when you come back. You know, you don't get the seeding and a draw. And it's it's tough, you know. Um, it's tough to to turn up and play those players cold. But that's that's what Andy Murray's been learning. It's what lots of other people coming back from injury are learning. And um, yeah, she'll be back, I'm sure. And it was nice to see her in pretty, a little sort of looked like she might have had a few tears after defeat, but in pretty cheery mood, really, and, and willing to come and talk to us, which was great. Um, she said, I have to tell myself, hey, like six months ago, you were pregnant, <laughs> which, you know, it's a, it's a fair point. And she um, she did well. All that considered, we, we hope to see her again, maybe on the clay, who knows? I know it's not her favourite surface, but I think it would be a great statement for her to come back to Roland Garros, where obviously it was so fraught a couple of years ago, and uh, yeah, we could we could maybe start to heal some of those wounds collectively. Um, I'll try and heal some wounds with Calvin and get hold of him over the next 24 hours. Um, thanks very much for listening, and most importantly, please do come back tomorrow. Sports Social Podcast Network.